as a church are aware of the uniqueness of elders that think in the way that our elders think, and it is. Um, last year when I took a sabbatical, it was uh, kind of on the cusp of uh, right after my sister passed away, some of you know that, and challenging time, and um, the elders approached me about it and uh, made it happen, and then immediately said, um, <laughs> Pastor Ryan does the work of about four staff members, and all he does, we need to make this happen. Um, the, the thoughtfulness of that and the care of that is, is really remarkable, and it's unique. And, and for me, it, it, uh, it speaks to the quality of leadership uh, that we have here, and extremely grateful for that. So thankful for the elders and, uh, and the congregation that is, is committed to health, not just for one another, but for even your leadership. So thank you. Uh, thank you for that. Let me, uh, let me pray for us here briefly. Um, and then uh, we'll dive into God's Word. Father, we thank you for this chance, uh, this opportunity, this ordained time where you give us each uh, week to come before your Word, to hear from you, to be changed by it, to be shaped by it, to be challenged by it. We pray, Lord, you would bless us as we come to this time. We think of those uh, in need at this moment. We think of Tony Holiday and his chemo treatment, and he is back in the ICU. We pray for his body for his kidneys to respond, we pray for the tumors to shrink, we pray for health for him, be with Diane as she comforts and cares for him. We do pray for Ryan and his family that you would bless them these weeks ahead, that it would be restoring, that it would be refueling, that it would re-galvanize their sense of calling to give their life for the sake of serving this church. As we look in our bulletin, we see a list of those that are sick and homebound. We remember them. We ask that you would be near those who are hurting and those who are struggling. Be near the, those in financial stress today, many feeling the weight and the poor and the needy today. We uh, are not, uh, may we not take for granted the privileges and the benefits we have. And so, Lord, we pray for them. We pray for our city and for the gospel to go forward, not just in this church, but all the churches that are meeting this morning, that the word of God would be proclaimed, the truth would be proclaimed, that you would grow, and the kingdom of God would build and advance in our city, we pray. Oh God, now we pray that as we come to your word, you would meet us and do what only you can do. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Um, I thought, I thought this would be, uh, I thought there might be a few less guys today, I thought there might be some golfing today, and, and I thought this might be like, like a women's conference, um, that y'all would go out to the highways and the byways and invite every woman you knew to come join, but it looks pretty balanced here. Um, we did talk last week, we began uh, this passage, this household codes, um, with the, the, the the words that Paul gives, the instructions through the Spirit that he gives to wives. And then today, we're going to turn and look at uh, what he says to husbands. Um, we, we prefaced it with, uh, it, it is not a mistake, this is a battleground, this is a challenging place. We look out in the culture, and we realize the family is not doing so well, right? We, we kind of agreed to that, I think, with a show of nods. The family's not thriving. Sometimes we don't like the language of the text, we don't like the language of submit, um, we frown at that. It seems antiquated. Um, and yet we try to talk about what that is and what that is not. 
last week, we know there's a lot of misconception. We know that there's a lot of, have been a lot of abuse of that word and misuse of that. And yet we also know um, that abuse doesn't negate the proper use. And that God's instructions for marriage are not for harm or not to subjugate or to oppress, but it's for good. So we come to marriage as, as believers with an act of faith. But if we're seeking in community together to live in a certain way, it's for our good, it's for our blessing, and it's to tell the world a different story about who God is and how he loves a people like ourselves. And so today we're going to shift our focus to the husbands, right? All of the wives said amen. Would you stand as we read God's word together? We'll read the text We're to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And wives, submit to your own husbands as the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. So that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. No one has ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a husband shall leave his father and mother and shall hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself. Let the wife see that she respects her husband. This is God's very word to us. You may be seated. Uh, instructions. Main word, main verb. Love husbands. Love your Wives, we're going to look at four things about this, this love. Uh, I thought about making this like a 10-minute sermon, but it didn't seem like it would do justice to my 35 minutes last week for, husband, for uh, wives, so we're going to talk about this in depth. First thing I want you to see is that the love of a husband to a wife is a subset of the general love of one believer to another. I said that last week about uh, wives, that we're all called to submit and yet there's a particular calling of wives to submit or to respect her husbands. Likewise, we're all called to love. This is not unique to husbands. And yet there's a particular calling to husbands to love their wives. Particular person, their wife. We'll see in a particular way coming up. It's not as though you read this command to husbands love your wives and were shocked by it, right? Oh, love, where'd that come from? Right? It's throughout the Bible. It's love, 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 love God, love one another. 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter. Love, love, love. A few verses earlier, he says this, uh, chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, be imitators of God. Husbands are about to be told to be imitators of Christ. Everyone, be imitators of God. How? Walk in love. As Christ loved you and gave himself for you. That's not just for men to love. It's all of us, we mutually submit to one another in deference and humility and honor, and we mutually love one another. So the love of husbands to a wife is a subset of that, 
What Paul is saying is that there's a lot Paul could say to husbands and in instructions, but if I had to, 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 to narrow it down to one thing, one lasting word, it comes down to husbands. Love, love your wives. Love your wives. Second thing, the command for a husband to love his wife is a radical, radical command. Um, not unfamiliar, the Bible says a lot, we just said that, about love. Um, but it's a radical command. Uh, interesting that when we read um, submit, that language, we get uncomfortable, don't we? We're kind of, oh, I don't like that word. We might look down, we, we, we uh, snarl, we want to leave that part off. But when we read love, we have no problem with it, right? Love, of course, that's what they're supposed to do. Um, I'll, I'll submit that love is a far more radical concept, both in Paul's time and in our time today. Uh, Paul spends three times more attention on husbands than he does wives. Nine verses, verses three to wives, nine to husbands. And I believe the reason he does is because his command to love is so radical in the cultural context that Paul's writing. So we mentioned last week, this is a section called Household Codes. This isn't uh, uh, unfamiliar to the, to the greater world around Paul. It's in the Bible several places. But in, in Greco-Roman literature, uh, in Second, Second Temple Judaism, uh, a literature of that day, that, so after the temple was rebuilt, the, the latter half of the B.C. era into the early centuries A.D., there are lots of writings that have household codes. You can find them, you can read them, you can examine them. The New Testament is the only place, you hear that, only household code where husbands are commanded to love their wives. It's a, it's a radical concept. Maybe manage, oversee, direct, lead, not to love. You didn't hear that in antiquity. You probably don't hear that today. This is a radical concept. What does that mean? It means that the Bible, we, we think the Bible's outdated, you know. Uh, the, the Bible's progressive. <laughs> Radical Bible people, right? The value and care it shows for women is unparalleled in ancient literature or modern literature. Paul's a you know, chauvinist, misogynistic, I love your wives. Jesus, when he encounters women, and some of the women in the hardest places, dignifies and honors and supports them and supports them. It's good to know that women are valued; they're prized. Furthermore, that this command um, is radical, and that it makes no provision for the wife to earn her husband's favor. Right? It doesn't say, "Wives, get it together." Manage yourself, fix your life, husbands then love her. It doesn't say that. It says, husbands, love your wives. Regardless of any other factor, love your wife. Does her respect of your husband, does it help? Yes, but it's not contingent. We said that last week, right? 
Why? If you're calling to support and to respect, does it help if he loves you? It does, but it's not contingent. Paul separates these out and says, to the wife, here is your great command. To the husband, here is your great command. Now, if you're not both doing it, it's going to be a difficult marriage. And many of you know that and have experienced that. And yet we cannot control, we cannot manage the other, can we? We've all tried. (laughs) It doesn't work. Husbands, love your wife. Period. All are called to love. Love is far more radical than we know. Third, um, this is kind of the meat of the sermon. Uh, There are two models that are given. Two models that are given for husbands to love their wives. The first model is husbands love your wife as Christ loved the church. There is no higher calling or greater challenge in the whole world. He just told you, husband, that your life And the way you relate to the person that you see almost every day and live with is to mimic and model the Lord Jesus himself. Radical. What would you have said? Imagine, some of you may do this, imagine you're in marriage counseling or you're counseling a young couple that's getting married or or someone asks you, what would you say to husbands? What would you say? What would you have said? I got, you got one word. There's a lot we can say. But you got one word. What would you have said? Lead her. Encourage her. Uh, good things. Pray for her. D- do devotions with her. Um, take her on dates. All those would have been good. He says, you rough and tough, you manly men, love her. In the manner that Christ loves the church. Often uh, much is made of the different word choices in the Bible. And um, sometimes it's overdone. I think here it it matters. Uh, You know probably there's different words for love. Most of the Bible, the language of love uh, and love one another and so forth is the phileo love, right? It's a, it's a sense of brotherly love. It's the, you know, Philadelphia, right? There's this sense of mutual love, care. For one another, uh, there's eros love. That is a, a love that is romantic or sensual. Think of the word erotic love, and that that love uh, also has its proper place, right? That's not the word he uses. He uses the agape love. What love is that? That is the divine love God has for us as people. It is covenantal. It is unconditional. See, we have covenants and we break them. God covenants. He has bound Himself. In his son, through his blood, he doesn't break the covenant. Do you see that? Agape. So husbands, don't love your wife like you love the bros, right? Or just in in sort of a sexual, romantic way. But love her in a way God has bound himself in covenant, commitment, and fidelity to her. Do you see the radical nature of this? This is radical. And we must say, well, well, <laughs> good luck, fellas. <laughs> this is a pattern imitation. It says, even as. It means in the vein of. Husbands love in the same manner of as Christ. We're not the Savior. 
We're not going to save her, purify her, redeem her, that we can't do those things. But as Christ has done that, you follow in the same trajectory of sacrificial love in that way. It's pattern imitation. It's not one-to-one imitation. There is but one Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who has loved his bride, us, the church. So if husbands are to love our wives in this radical way, and the question is, how does Christ love the church, right? How does he do it? He says he gave himself up for her. He gave himself up for her. He gave his life. How do you love her? A friend, an acquaintance. He gave himself up for her. And we talk about Christ giving himself up for her at the church. It, it does speak to that finality of the cross. But every movement Christ has made toward us is him giving himself up. The incarnation is God stooping and entering in in a manger in flesh. He's giving himself. His life under the authority of men submitting himself is giving himself up for her. Him marching, knowing what's ahead to Jerusalem is him giving himself up for her. Being mistreated, abused, betrayed, beaten, crucified is him giving himself up for her. It is a life of commitment to give himself, for us to give himself. Now, I, I do think this language of, of, of sacrificial giving can be misleading because, uh, and this is sort of generalities, don't not over stereotype here, but um, you know, there's something, there is something about a man that loves a calling, you know, like a purpose. We're going to give our life for something, right? You know, if I told right now, let, let's all race to the bank over there and back, you know, most of the older folks would. Stay seated. Most of the middle-aged people like me would probably stay seated. Most of the, the ladies would probably, but boys from like 12 to like 25 would like dart out the door, right? A bunch of barbarians would be knocking over the, like, right? Because we want to challenge, we're gonna take the hill, you know, go to war, blow stuff up. That's why we football players come out of the, the, the tunnel, they're going to throw a, a, you know, a leather around, but they come out like they're going to battle and they want a challenge, and, and they're snowball to that, we, you know, um, all the war imagery, it, it's true, and, and I know women involved in that too, but there's this sense of calling and sacrifice, and I, if I ask you husbands, would you take a bullet for your wife, most of you would say yes, right? Yes, I would, I'd die for her, and I believe you, and yet I think that's probably the easier task. To give yourself is the difficult, ordinary, ongoing sacrificial love. Listen to one author says this about giving yourself. This does not mean that every husband will necessarily have to die for his wife, but it most assuredly means this, that every husband must deny himself of time, of resources, of self-gratification to express his love for his wife. Far harder to do. Far harder to do. Well, sometimes we prefer foreign missions more than domestic, right? <laughs> it's nice to go there and do stuff. It's hard to do it here in your backyard. This giving yourself is a continual, costly, laying down your life sacrifice. For what purpose does Christ give himself? Listen to this, and I want you to just listen to this. It's like Paul was talking about um, husbands, and he just gets carried away. <laughs> 
His Christology is so high, he can't stop. He says this. Give him, love her, give himself, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Do, do you see how this is not a, just a practical issue? You say, I don't like all that theology. I just want to do practical stuff. And there's some people that are like, yeah, I just want the theology stuff. I just want to talk about that and not the practical stuff. You see, the very basics of loving your spouse is deeply theological. So to, 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 to love your spouse, you've got to understand, what has Christ done? What has he accomplished for us? And if you say you know theology, then you must give yourself for your spouse, for your wife. To sanctify her, he says, what does that mean? What does sanctify mean? It means two things. It means, one, to be set apart. That your wife, you, you saw her, she was, she was chosen. That, that the Lord Jesus sees us. There's a crowd, you know, at, at, at the dance, and he, he makes eyes with us, and he chooses us out. Israel is the chosen bride. The church is the chosen people. We're set apart in the heart of God. We're set apart as his people. But it also means to sanctify her, means to purify from sin, to cleanse. Christ chooses us and sets us apart and then is committed to changing us, to cleansing us, to washing us, to purifying us, to making us this beautiful thing of splendor and radiance. He says the goal of sanctifying is to present the bride Radiant, no spot or wrinkle, holy and blameless. Husbands are to love this way. You know, I, I've had an opportunity to do several weddings, a no, number of weddings, and I enjoyed them. Um, and I always, near, near the beginning of the service, we'll go into the, to the, to the groom's room, you know, and then they're, they're all in there. And, you know, it's a, <laughs> it's, a, it's a messy bunch, you know. And the groom's nice they got their little boutonniere and but they're you know they're telling jokes and they're farting and they're like eating wings and they're just sloppy you know it just it's just kind of like good gracious you know and then then you go right before the you go in the the the, the bride's room you know and you you come in and and, and they're they're getting ready and and the, the bridesmaids look amazing but then you see the bride right it's like that moment where you uh you see a, a baby smile for the first time it's one of those sacred things and it's just radiant I mean, she's glorious. And then you have that moment where the doors open and she comes down. And everyone looks at her and you, you turn and you see his face, the groom, you know, and he's just Shekinah glory, you know, shining, you know, his, he's ear to ear. Good Josh Rode smile right there. I see the smile, right? Just radiant. Um. The wedding day doesn't come with the, uh, the, the crazy hair morning, you know, the coffee breath, the, the, the baggy PJs, <laughs> the exhausted, tired eyes from kids. That's not, that's not the moment that they came together. In fact, in, in, in the relationship of, of, of men and women, it normally starts on a really good front, right? A first date where you, you look nice, you put your best on, you go to a nice dinner, it's, 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 you know, it's a nice setting or... You know, or a social gathering when everyone looks their best, they're trying to impress, they're, oh, they're saying the right things, they're being winsome and fun and whatever. We meet that way. 
Here's the thing. When Christ caught our eye, when he found us, it wasn't in that, that bridal room. It wasn't on a, on a nice dress of the first day. We were, we were a mess. We were, we were in the dark alley. We were an addict in the alley looking for a fix. We were filthy. We looked like uh, children in a war-torn area with raggedy clothes, malnourished. And not just our appearance, but our attitude, we were harsh and hostile. Scripture says uh, when he came after us, we were enemies. We were haters of God. We were against him. And in that place, in that alley, in that filth, he chose us. That's where he found you. Amazing. That's where he gave himself. And that's where he committed to not leave us there. But one day he's going to present us radiant. And it'll be outwardly beautiful in the new heavens and the new earth. But in this life he is changing our, our character, our disposition. He's making us beautiful. He's making us like Christ. He's making us like his son. He's washing us. In this way, the bride on the wedding day pales in comparison. And all of her beauty pales to the, the picture of the church before the Lord, before Christ, in that day when he returns. There's so much to say here. I, I don't have time. Old Testament, all the language of marriage and sprinkling us clean and new hearts and commitment. This is what he does and says, husbands, love your wife in this way. Not at her best. Anybody can do that. And her worst. We thought submission was difficult, right? And no, husbands, you are not able to sanctify her. That's not your job in the, in the true sense. You can't make her righteous. But you can love her. And if you've encountered the love of Christ in your own life, it transforms. Right? Grace transforms. It says to love her, not to fix her, not to point out all her faults. She's probably aware of most of them, and she's probably crushed by them. Jesus can handle that. But imagine if you began to love her the way Christ loved the church, it might change her. It might be the thing that undoes it. It might be the place where the chains fall off and her heart comes alive again. It's hard to preach as a, as a husband who fails so often. If he loved her, he would probably scare her to death, but it would enthrall her and it would change her. Nobody met Jesus and wasn't changed. And if we come even a fraction of close to that type of love, it will change them. And in the end, just like you, husband, with all your faults, she, she will be presented before the king of glory in radiance and beauty. Second model, much quicker, much quicker. 
The same way, verse 28, husbands love your wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. Because we are members of one body. Therefore, a husband shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. If, if the lofty language of Christ and the church didn't move your heart, and if it didn't, let's ask some questions why it doesn't. But if it doesn't move your heart, then Paul gets really practical. Who's the one person you love the most in this world? Who do you get up every morning thinking about? It's yourself. It's yourself. Some of you say, no, I don't love myself. I've got low self-esteem. I, I struggle. That's not what he's talking about. This is not psychological here. He's saying if uh, you're hungry, you feed yourself. If a bear comes to attack you, you defend yourself, right? If you're cold, you put on a jacket. You do that for yourself. And if you do that for yourself, now your wife is a part of yourself. Do the same thing for her. Do you see that? He's very practical here. For no one has ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, takes care of it. These aspects of caring for your own body, you nourish it. What does that mean? You provide for it. There's provision. You care for your wife. You oversee. You lead by looking after, paying attention, being aware. But then also, he says something radical. He says cherishes it. Again, nobody says this about husbands to wives. That seems some kind of sentimental romantic comedy stuff. Cherishing. That's kind of soupy, right? That's what he says. Cherish. What does that mean? It means to prize her, to value, to honor, to hold high compassion. He who loves his wife loves himself. He quotes Genesis 2. You've become one. You've bound yourself. Okay, you're going to care for yourself. And tomorrow morning when you wake up, before your feet hit the ground, you're going to be thinking about your day, your coffee, your meeting, breakfast. <laughs> yeah. There's a one flesh. Now, there's a lot can be gone wrong here. I know all the counselors in the room are probably looking at me. One flesh, there's, there can be some misapplication that the wife doesn't lose herself in her husband. She's still her own self, her own identity. But the husband is to think of her as an extension of himself so much so that he gives him whole, his whole self to her to nourish and cherish her. Finally, application. I've got to be quick. Um, again, mo- most of this we said last week is probably conditioned more by culture than it is by the Bible. You know, who, who does the finances, who cuts the grass, who cooks the meals, who does whatever. I, I, there, there may, there, you know, the Bible might have some directions, some categories, but not really. That's not really the point. He finishes with verse 33. However, if I have one word for each of you, husbands and wives, let each of you love his wife as himself, love And let the wife see that she respects her husband. Take that, take it to heart, and then we're going to work out, flesh out the details. Do the details matter? Yes. Sometimes do we need help in the details? Do we need community? Do we need friendship? Do we need maybe counseling to help in the details? Yes, we do. But often we focus on the details and we've missed the command to love and to respect, right? So Paul says, start there. Press into that and then let's work it out. A few practical suggestions, again, suggestions from Clinton Arnold. One's general. He says, um, in general, husbands, are you willing 
Are you growing in a willingness to deny yourself to ensure your wife's well-being and care? Are you willing to grow in denying yourself for her well-being and care? Just like you're going to go down the hill, are you willing to do that day in, day out? Are you growing in that sense? Not in perfection, are you growing? Second, he says, are you vigilant to guard against tones and language that could wound your wife? Your language, your speech. Colossians, in the parallel passage to this, says, don't be harsh with your wives. You know, we all learn sticks and stones may break our bones, but words will never hurt us, right? Remember that? Somebody remember that? The biggest playground lie of all time. It, it is. Some of you have seared in your mind what your, what your dad told you when you were six about you wouldn't be anything, right? Words matter. They impact you. The way you speak to her, your tone, your words matter. Number three, do you spend regular quality time with your wife and consistently make her feel precious to you? This is where some of the generational stuff comes in. Some of the older generations and, and will say, uh, it happens with kids too. You know, I, uh, he was a provider. He took care. He met all our needs, right? And that's great. That should be the case. We talked about nourishing. That's part of the provision. That's part of leading. But I want to tell you, husbands, that's the baseline. That's the bottom. That's the bare minimum. We're not just to provide food on the table or help in that way. We're to emotionally and spiritually to invest time and connection with our wives. Do you spend time with her? Do you value her? Is there companionship? Do you date her? I feel guilty just saying that. My wife plans our dates. Thank you. And here's one thing. This is, we're, we're, we're getting close. Um, here, fellas, listen to this. This is radical. I, I've been married almost 20 years, and I'm just learning this. If you want to know what makes her feel valued and seen and loved, stay with me. You can ask her. Seriously. Like, you can go and say, hey, uh, I want to care for you right now. Seems like a lot going on. What would make you feel loved and valued and seen? And just stop. Did you know, husbands, you can do that? And you know what happens most of the time? They tell you. Like, I, I never thought of that. Like, I have all these ideas. This is what it's supposed to look like. If you ask them, they'll tell you. And then you take it, and we're kind of one track. Then we try to do that very thing. And sometimes it works. Right? It's amazing. Do you spend time making her feel valued? Four, do you, husbands, do you take the initiative and in conflict resolution? Every marriage has conflict. If your marriage doesn't have conflict, I have some concern for you. I don't think you're being honest. And I'm not joking. I think I'm serious. But healthy marriages have conflict, but then they have repentance and repair. And they confess. And husbands, this is where you take the lead. This is where you bleed first. Yeah, but what about she does X, Y, and Z? And what about she does this, this, and this? How, did, how does the church treat Christ? Got it. <laughs> Conflict resolution. Two more. Husbands, do you lead your, uh, let's see, to lead your wife well, do you recognize her giftedness and identify ways to support her 
and give her opportunities to express her gifts. That's wordy. Do you see her gifts? Do you see her ways that she can, what she can do, not her come along you? She's really good at this. How do I champion her? Fan into flame. Husbands, we need to utilize the gifts of our wife. We need to see them. Church, we need to do that here. We need to be empowering women in our church more than we are now. I believe that. We need to recognize gifts. We need to provide opportunities. And then we need to fan the flame those gifts. That's part of leadership. It's like we talked about last week, uh, the team captain. That's the role he's, they've been given. But that role, they may not be the best player. They put people in the best place to serve and to lead for the good of the whole the same way for us. And finally, I wasn't going to for time, but I'm going to. Husbands, do you take every, this is important, do you take every precaution not to demean your wife by looking at other women in inappropriate ways and desiring them in your heart? Did you hear that? Do you make every effort not to demean them by looking at other women in the way you shouldn't, not just outwardly, but within your own heart? To sanctify a member means to be set apart. So you can't set her apart as your wife when your heart is busy with lots of women and lots of images. And we know this is a struggle. And we know, fellas, there's a lot coming at us from images and opportunities. But as we grow to love our wives, we've got to be decluttering. We have to have eyes for one. Christ only has one church. He's got one bride. husbands, take this list, ask yourself how you're doing. Ask your wife how you're doing. If you want this list, I'll I'll send it to email it to you. Talk about it. Husbands, you don't have to be afraid. You're going to fail at most of these, and you do and you have. But if you're in Christ, there's no condemnation. You're covered. You're forgiven. So now lead by looking at them and talking about them and confessing and repenting. And you know what? She'll respond well, and she'll become more radiant. If we do this, if we even come close, we'll tell the world such a story. Let's pray. Father, thank you for...